confirm some decisions that were made by some of our church members this morning. If you look around you, it's a little sparse this morning, don't you? Have you noticed that? And that is because uh, we have some church members that are isolating uh, due to a COVID exposure, and some of them have had some symptoms, and so they are keeping away from you in this moment, and that's a good thing. Uh, Thank you. I know you're watching us online. Thank you for uh, loving your brothers and sisters in this particular manner. I just want to be able to remind you that during our worship services, we also have uh, the fellowship hall open that's for a simulcast, even though apparently it's not working today because I'm getting a shaking of the head from the sound booth. Uh, But it is an option for you later, uh, should you desire to come and worship and be socially distanced from from other people. But let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's... uh, Let's ask him to bless our efforts this morning to worship and honor him. God, we come before you as we have already sung and already read in your word. We come to you in the precious righteousness of Jesus Christ and he alone. We pray, Lord, that you would rid us of any type of conviction that thinks we belong in your presence due to our own filthy rags of righteousness that, Lord, you would remind us of the value of the gospel this morning, and that, Lord, it would cause our hearts to just rise even higher, to worship, to honor you, to know that all things are in your hands. And so, Lord, that even includes our brothers and sisters who are feeling ill this morning, and some, Lord, who are taking precautions right now in abundance just to make sure they don't cause sickness to spread. And so, Lord, we pray that you be with them, you comfort them, We pray, Lord, that you would honor their decision to worship you in this particular manner online, and that, Lord, through that, uh, you would allow them to experience uh, the robust fullness of the Holy Spirit as he comes through his word. May you be honored this day. May you receive all the glory. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, as a pastor and as a counselor, I am always fascinated by what controls human beings. We all have some overruling motivation that controls our thoughts, our actions, and our beliefs. For a teenager, it might be pleasing a parent or a coach. You, you don't want to let them down, so that controls your behavior to, to work harder or to work longer to show them how much you need their approval. For a parent, it might be the protection of their children. We see the idea of the helicopter parents always dropping in to rescue the child when there is unpleasantness. And all of their time is devoted to ensuring their child has the best opportunities they can, to be the safest they possibly could be. They stay up late at night worrying if they did enough to help their child succeed. Then there's the ambitious who needs prestige to be the best. And until others acknowledge that they are the best, they will not rest from that. Now, we could go on to the lies that people tell themselves and depression to identity politics and and other issues that control our lives. But this morning, we're going to see two sets of belief that battle for the authority to control our lives. Two, that we must ever be alert. Turn with me, if you will, back to Matthew chapter 16. This is on page 822 of your pew Bible. We need to begin with just a brief reminder of the confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders that occurred in verses 1 through 4. This coalition of Pharisees and Sadducees demanded a heavenly sign from our Lord, and Jesus refused to give them one outside of the sign of Jonah, which, as we discuss now on two occasions, is the preaching of repentance and the eventual resurrection of Jesus, both of which are ironically heavenly or divine, as we might say. 
Jesus informs them his divine nature should be blatantly obvious by now in what he has already said and in the actions that he has done before them. But these men, in their state that they are in, their sinful state, are unable to recognize who Jesus claims to be. Their challenge is really about authority. As those already in the position of power and influence over the people, they are in a word saying, do what we demand. Give us a heavenly sign. And if you do so, then we'll consider following you. But if not, then we're still in control and you have no authority here. And as the one by whom all things were created, he who was with the Father in the beginning, Jesus very easily could have given them what they wanted. He could have caused comets to to flash overhead or blotted out the sun and the moon or shook the ground with an earthquake, but he did not. He had his own agenda in doing the will of the Father from which no one could divert him. Even if Jesus had done what they demanded, they still would have been blind to his identity due to their sin. They probably would have just said, well, whatever cosmic sign appeared was mere coincidence. No, until Jesus accomplished his mission of redeeming sinful mankind at the cross and being resurrected from the dead, none of us, much less these men, had a chance of recognizing who he was. His mission was just too great to be deterred. Hence, these men sound much like Satan trying to tempt Jesus in the wilderness back in Matthew chapter 4. The devil's words were very similar in challenging the authority of our Lord. If you'll remember, remember those words, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself off the top of the temple, allow the angels to rescue you, and such a spectacle will convince the people that you really are the Messiah. But thankfully, our Lord is not impatient. He feels no need to prove himself to these arrogant men. He will not be diverted from his divine appointed plan of doing the Father's will. So Jesus warns them about their desire for signs, and then he turns to leave and returns to Gentile country. We see the destination there in verse 13. And it's on his trip back across the Sea of Galilee that a dilemma occurs, one that provokes a warning from the Lord. Now, if we in the church heed this, this day, then it has potential to radically transform our sanctification. And it's my desire to explore this topic this morning under three different headings. The confusion concerning the bread, then Jesus' admonition to the disciples, and then the clarification of Jesus' thoughts. That's confusion, admonition, clarification. And after that, We need to take time to ponder what Jesus provides or why Jesus provides this warning here and its significance to us. So I'll very quickly cover these first three headings and leave the bulk of our time considering the warning because it's still definitely relevant for all of us today. So when the disciples reach the other side of the sea, they they realize they've forgotten to bring bread with them. Now, this was an unusual occurrence for them. They normally took care of securing provisions. For example, it would appear in John 4, when Jesus was traveling through Samaria, his disciples had gone into town to purchase food for him. Judas carried their money bag for just such purposes. They liked to be prepared. They were in this area previously, and they knew how remote it was. They they knew they could fish, but there would be no bread available. And they're concerned about their supplies. But Jesus uses their conversation about bread to reflect on what just occurred on the western bank of the sea. 
he turns the conversation towards leaven. Watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And this perplexes the disciples because they're thinking of literal leaven, yeast and bread. And in my mind, I can almost see the confusion on their faces as they speak these words here in verse 7. Okay, maybe you didn't hear us, Jesus. We, we brought no bread with this. No worries there, Lord. We didn't purchase anything from those guys, so we don't even have any bread at all. They're focused on their lack of supply. But Jesus is talking about an issue that is more important than food. It's more important than hunger in our stomachs. Therefore, he issues an admonition to them. And we should note that he has the expectation that they will understand him. Verse 8, but Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith. Now note that phrase. This is the fourth time that we've seen it in Matthew's gospel. And each time it's used, Jesus challenges his hearers' doubts that God will provide and protect those in his care. The first time was in the Sermon on the Mount when when he asked the disciples to consider the lilies and the sparrows and God's provision for them. The second was when Jesus rebuked the storm in the boat. The third time was when Peter walked on the water and Jesus rescued him. On each of those previous occasions, it was not that they didn't have faith, but that they had little faith. And the same little faith applies to their lack of supplies here. O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? And he recounts two incredible examples of provisions to his followers. Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Remember with the 5,000 plus, there were 12 baskets left over after everyone's fed, one basket full for each disciple. That was an answer to Jesus telling them, you give them something to eat, and they were perplexed and thought they couldn't. Then the last time they were in this same Gentile region, Jesus fed 4,000 plus with seven loaves of bread. And there were seven baskets left over after that miracle. Remember, that's Jesus' clever reply when the disciples asked, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? We only have seven loaves for the 13 of us. And of course, they get their loaves back. When you are with Jesus, he is always faithful. He always provides exactly what you need. Provision of bread should be their last concern, which is why Jesus asked them here in verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. To our Lord, having faith in his provision should have been obvious to his followers and expected by now. And yet this is sadly the way of most of us. Pardon the pun here, but we are consumed with provision. God has been faithful to provide. We saw it yesterday, did we not? We saw it the day before yesterday and the day before that. But the reply always comes back to us, but what about the day if it stops? And yet you have all you need on this day. But more importantly than the provision of our material needs, we've seen the provision of our salvation. Jesus did not withhold his own life at the cross. Romans 8, 32, Paul's going to ask, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Christ has secured his redemption or our redemption with his blood. We have eternal security in heaven purchased by the blood of the only begotten son of God. Nothing is more valuable than that. And yet we're still worried about bread in this world, this world that is passing away. But Jesus is always concerned for more than just our stomachs. He expects our prayer of give us this day our daily bread to be enough. But consider the other references to bread outside of these. Remember his reply to Satan's temptation in Matthew 4, 4? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or when he spoke to his disciples when they were concerned that he wasn't eating. This is John 4. The disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone bought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Or a little later in John's gospel, he was asked about bread by the people in John chapter 6. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the next reference in Matthew's gospel to bread will be when Jesus refers to his own body at the Lord's Supper. Like the disciples, we are consumed with bread, with material issues, things that God has already made provision. Like them, our concerns are temporal for the immediate, for the here and now. But Jesus points us towards higher thoughts, more important issues that affect our souls. He expects the disciples to get this, to understand it. And they do. And our final verse of the morning, they clarify his meaning. Verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is the second time Jesus has metaphorically referred to yeast or leaven. The last was in the positive manner back in uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, when he compared it to the kingdom of heaven. A little bit of it, a little bit of the kingdom spreads and it transforms the entire bunch. Here it's used negatively. The teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees spreads and it transforms too. But our Lord's point is, is that it changes for the bad. A little bit of it can make one corrupt. But why? Why is it so dangerous? What is it about it? And this is where we must contemplate this warning. Watch! And beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's an imperative. Watch. Be vigilant. Be on guard. So are you? Are you watching for this specifically? Jesus said this is dangerous in the way that you should view how you are going about your life. I, I remember distinctly when I was a, a little kid, my grandfather taught me, always look before you pick up the first log on a wood pile, because what would be under it if you didn't watch for it or on it? Those of you who know, a snake. 
you never had to tell me ever again to watch out for snakes on a wood pile. Sometimes I'd get a big stick and poke the wood off just to make sure I didn't run into a snake. I was that careful. And this warning comes from our Lord Jesus to his followers. There is no higher authority to issue it. Why would we be exempt from it now? As I mentioned last week, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have differing religious philosophies. But they are alike in that they can spiritually destroy the individual. And as we shall see, each philosophy is still present today. Now, let me remind you that Jesus is saying this about religious people who claim to worship the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. Therefore, I would say that each of us in this room or to those of us that are listening online, that for the vast majority of us, those of us who are religious, we are to take, warning, take this warning to heart even today. For the consequences of failing to heed this warning is death. This is an eternal life or death matter here. So let's begin with the deception or the description here of the yeast of the Sadducees. We see the primary beliefs of the Sadducees in passages like Matthew chapter 22, Mark 12, Luke 20, and also in Acts chapter 23, verse 8. The Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife, nor did they believe in supernatural beings. In the Sadducees' mind, this world is all that there is. Sure, they believed that that God existed and they went through the motions of their temple worship as a form of their national identity. God could bless you in this life, sure, but it was up to you to make that happen. It was up to you to make that happen. They believed that life should be lived primarily by human ingenuity. And if they sinned in doing so, they could make a few sacrifices later to make up for it. It's worth pointing out that this is the precise manner in which the vast majority of the Jews of the Old Testament lived their lives. They didn't live like the Pharisees being meticulous to keep the law. They just went through the motions, going through the motions of some sort of religious activity when they felt like it. But usually living here without a second thought or for regard for God. We see the prophets constantly calling the people to repent and obey the covenant. Amos is a prime example. He points out that Israel made the sacrifices, they they kept the feast, but they neglected the justice of the law. They ignored righteous living. In Amos 5, God declared through his prophet, I hate, that's coming from God, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Like many self-proclaimed Christians who confess Christ, they appropriated what they felt was useful in Christian practice because they liked to be thought of moral people. Or they like the feelings that they received in their experience. Maybe they even attend a a Sunday morning service, but then for the vast majority of their time, the rest of the week, they never give a second thought to God. They live their lives as though God does not exist. They may be named Christian, but functionally, they are secular humanists. The results of such a philosophy is that the Sadducees live by a different standard 
than the faithful believer because they live for this world, not the next. Whatever is pragmatic and works in this moment is the standard. Most times this comes from a false understanding of original sin. They believe because we're all created in the image of God that that somehow we are all inherently good. In fact, John Morley, a 19th century liberal British statesman, believed that mankind was superior in his goodness and that we all could evolve to the epitome of goodness due to us being created in the image of God. He wrote, quote, get this, human nature is good. This is the key that secularizes the world. This is the key that secularizes the world. Believing there's really no need for God as a moral standard since we're all good. The problem with such a view is it not only ignores the teaching of the Bible, but that we fail to recognize that we were created for God and His glory, not the glory of aspiring man. We're here to magnify His goodness. We must never think that our goodness, corrupted by our sin nature, can ever surpass His. If there is something in man to be emulated, it is only found in Jesus Christ, the God-man. As Christians, we are called to reflect his goodness, not our own. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among the many brothers. Colossians 3, 10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Perhaps C. Fitzsimmon Allison, the former Anglican bishop of South Carolina, said it best. He said, If we do not know the purpose for which human life was designed, we have no grounds for claiming whether any human behavior is good or bad. These Sadducees were living for self, not for God. No wonder there was strife and conflicting interest among them. Living a life without God will do that to you. Each one does as he or she or they these days now see fit. That is the danger of the yeast of the Sadducees. In the depth of our depravity, we live for self and not the creator. We live for the now and not for the eternal. In contrast to the Sadducees, we have the yeast of the Pharisees. Their guiding philosophy was that there was an afterlife, one with eternal wards and eternal punishments. Therefore, obedience to the laws of God in this life matters. And it should be admitted that that not all Pharisees were considered bad. They continuously called the people to adhere to the covenant. In Luke chapter 13, they warned Jesus that Herod was after him. They got over their dietary hang-ups and would at least invite Jesus to join them for a meal in their homes. Some, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, believed Jesus. And it was Pharisees like Gamiel and the Sanhedrin that were instrumental in saving the lives of Jesus' followers. Nevertheless, they had their problems too. While they believed in an afterlife, they believed that it could be obtained by good works alone, on their own merits. It created a self-righteousness among them. Perhaps the greatest example of this is a parable that Jesus told in Luke 18. Listen to this, it's very brief. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. These Pharisees thought that the only thing that mattered were external actions. We read earlier the example of the righteous man, Isaiah, when he encountered the Lord in Isaiah 6. Even he, this righteous man, he fell on his face and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Surely more than external actions matter to God in such an occasion. This is why Jesus is going to quote Isaiah 29 in the previous chapter of Matthew 15. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus had already identified the leaven of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 12. There he said specifically, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy comes from the theater. It means to pretend by wearing a mask. The Pharisees look good on the outside, righteous even, but inside their hearts they were corrupt. And as long as their righteousness was based upon externals alone, then they could wield their religion like a weapon against others. And truthfully, hypocrisy works in portraying a moral standard. Unlike the Sadducees, they at least acknowledged a standard and they promoted it. Like the Pharisees in Jesus' parable here. Hypocrisy can make one feel safe from the immorality of the heart. If I just do enough of this, it makes up for what I'm hiding here. At a commencement address at the University of Alabama in 1994, Walt Raspberry, who was an African-American syndicated public affairs columnist, He spoke on the positive contribution of hypocrisy while commenting on the audacity of a book entitled Open Marriage, published 20 years earlier. That book had a degrading effect on society, particularly among psychologists. And as you can imagine by the title, this book advocated stretching boundaries, a let it all hang out kind of view, and if it feels good, then do it kind of attitude. And Raspberry, condemning this, said in his speech, quote, We are still paying the price of our abandonment of hypocrisy. And everything from family breakdown to drug-spawn crime to short-sighted selfishness and incivility that threaten to erode our institutions, wreck our economy, and topple the pillars of our society. Why, do you ask? Does hypocrisy have anything to do with it? Just this. The let-it-all-hang-out morality that crashed upon us in the 1970s accepts no standard, no morality, no code of behavior outside the minds of those engaging in the behavior. The idea is that it's okay to do whatever comes across your mind as long as you don't hurt anybody. Hypocrisy recognizes that erosions of standards hurts everyone. It accepts the sanctity of a societal standards even while violating them, end quote. Raspberry figured it out. It's not just what you portray to others, it's also what has to happen in here. Hypocrisy can create false moral standards around us. Raspberry's comments warn us that just enforcement of the rules will never resolve our social issues. Our hearts are still sinful 
even if people, even if people act like I can just behave better than everyone else. We may have a slick and shiny culture, but it's still rotten at its core. The Pharisees were wrong that one could be justified before God merely through their good works. This is why Jesus kept emphasizing the heart, the heart, the heart. We need radical transformation of the heart. The yeast of the Sadducees said that man is inherently good, therefore whatever man determines is good, especially when this life is all that there is. If I'm to enjoy it, I better acquire what makes me feel good. The yeast of the Pharisees was that man is sinful, but the solution is doing good works that appease God. So long as I go through the motions and get the most of the rules right here, then I can enter into the kingdom of heaven and enjoy its rewards. It's no wonder that both worldviews opposed Jesus. And hopefully we can see why Jesus opposed them. We see this attitude in the modern church today, don't we? On one side, there are those that live in this world as all there is, and and God doesn't care what I do just as long as I'm doing what I consider to be good, and I don't hurt anybody else. And then on the other side, there's a mindset that emphasizes, well, it's the strict adherence of the rules that matters. One is justified by their behavior. Therefore, straighten up. Get your act together. At least portray holiness to others. What is the antidote to this corrupting influence of the yeast of the Sadducees and the yeast of the Pharisees? The antidote is the gospel. It's the gospel. The word gospel is a synonym for the Greek term good news, and we must have a clear understanding of the bad news before we can understand the good news. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn to a familiar passage to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This is on page 976 of your pew Bible. Now, I could have chosen multiple places in the New Testament, like 1 Peter 1, but but here in just a few verses, the Apostle Paul puts the argument succinctly. He has answers here for those who think they're already good enough on their own to make good choices and live good lives now. And he has an answer for those who think they can correct their evilness through external good works. In light of what we've just learned from the leaven of these two religious groups, let's revisit this passage here again. For those who think they're apparently good here, Paul writes that this is every Christian state before Jesus came into their life, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul claims here that no one is good. In fact, he says, we are all dead in our sins. We are enslaved to our sins, trapped by the passions of our flesh, incapable of pleasing God. We are not good. We are children of wrath, without recourse in ourselves to make this well. And the reason why we're without recourse is because we are dead. Don't miss the spiritual metaphor here. A dead person cannot act. They have no life. And yet verse 4 gives us the hope of the gospel, the good news, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
That which was dead has now been made alive in Jesus Christ. Paul put it in another way in Romans chapter 5. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Paul goes on to write here, by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul is emphasizing there is another life. There's one beyond us, and it has glorious riches here, immeasurable riches, but the only way we're going to have them is not through our good works, are they? It's only obtained through Jesus Christ. The only way out of our deadness is to be made alive by Jesus, to be raised with him. And for those who may think, well, this can be earned by good deeds and not by faith alone in Christ's atonement, he writes here, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. The gospel is that Jesus came to save us from the yeast of the Sadducees, that we think somehow we can inherently be good enough, despite the fact that we live for ourselves and our own flesh, that, that we are inherently dead. Until Jesus comes, we don't even recognize our need for him. Such an illustration for me was when our youth group, not here at Providence, but when I was a youth pastor up in Tennessee, our youth group, we went to help a woman who lived by herself and she was blind. And immediately when we walked in the door, an odor hit us that was just overwhelmingly, powerfully bad. It almost made us drop to our knees. Our students couldn't help themselves. They had to pull their shirts and stuff over, up over their nose. We walked in. And this blind woman had been living there, and finally we found the source. It was coming from her bathroom. Her toilet had been leaking sewage underneath the floor of her house all of these years. Of course, she couldn't see it and didn't know it. And she had gotten so accustomed to the smell that it no longer bothered her. That's like us in our sin. We're so accustomed to it that until Christ comes, and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see us as we truly are, then we see we really are trapped in filth. We don't even recognize it until then. The gospel is also the antidote to the Pharisees' leaven, that we think we can justify ourselves before a holy God by doing good deeds. No, the only thing that can save us is the Lord Jesus. It is he that lived a perfect, spotless life. He is the only human being that has lived a perfect life for the Father. He's the only one that every action was truly good, righteous, with sincere motives of pleasing the Father. There was no hypocrisy in Jesus, no mask. But what is astounding by faith, believing that he made this sacrifice for you, he grants us his spotless, righteous standing before the Father and takes upon our sin. That's why we sang his robes for mine. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Faith in Jesus allows us to see ourselves as we really are, corrupt images of God needing to be free from our sin. God never throws us back to rely upon our own resources. 
He encourages rather to grow up as Christians by digging down more deeply into the riches of his grace in Jesus Christ. I have to confess, folks, I've been a Christian now for 30 years, and I'm still attracted sometimes to the yeast of the Sadducees and the yeast of the Pharisees to fall back on these things. I am. I look at this world and I think to myself, man, I need all of this to make me happy. You know what I mean? It's like you go to, go to your Amazon website and just, I'm just there to order good, godly Christian books and it tells me all these other things that I need to make my life happy. And then I'm also attracted to the use of the Pharisees. That when I sin, instead of going back to the gospel and repenting and pleading the mercies that have come from Jesus Christ, I find myself saying, well, yeah, what I did was wrong, but, but if I start doing these actions then it'll make up for it. That's what'll make me happier before God. That's what'll make me more pleasing before God when God is saying, no, 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 no. That's despicable before me. You come before me through the righteousness of my son. You acknowledge his need or your need for him, that you come through him alone. You you may be frustrated at me this morning for asking such a question, but do you think you are inherently good? If so, is that opinion of yourself based upon a comparison of yourself to others, or is it in comparison to the Lord Jesus? Because compared to Jesus, we all fall short. He is the ultimate example to which we all strive. We don't just emulate him, we need him. We need his righteousness to cover Friend, have you carefully, meticulously been watching for the yeast of the Sadducees and the yeast of the Pharisees? Because they are both spiritual death. Perhaps you acknowledge, well, there is a God, but yet you have functionally been living your life without him, as though he doesn't matter really. Or do you think that you can do enough good works to make up for the corruption that you hide from everyone else? The thing is, in either scenario, Jesus offers you a true solution, a righteousness that can be applied to us from outside of ourselves, a way to be free as we were created to live. Jesus is not smug or arrogant with his righteousness either. He doesn't treat us with a condescending attitude, but he treats us as dearly loved children. All that is required is that you believe he can save you and that you confess your need for him. Surrender your burden and yourself to his loving care. Join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, for those of us who are struggling and we've been putting our solution or our hope for a solution in the wrong thing, that somehow if I acquire enough stuff, then that's going to make me happy. Or if I do certain activities, that's going to make me more pleasing to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to repent in this moment, that you would ever make us vigilant about the yeast of the Sadducees and the yeast of the Pharisees, and that you would turn our hearts towards Jesus Christ. And Lord, if we are intimidated by that, would you remind us of the great love, of the great extent that you went to save us, 
to save our souls by the giving of your son. Let us be reminded of those great words that we just read, but God being rich in mercy, there is mercy to be found in you. And to know that you did this because of the great love with which you loved us. Oh, Lord, help us to recognize and to see that here is love. Here truly is love. Love that doesn't manipulate. Love that doesn't condescend. Love that is not proud, that is not arrogant, but truly loves us for who we are. Oh, Lord, allow us to yield to that love this morning and allow us to make much of the name of Jesus. We pray this in his finished work alone. Amen.